So who is reading our scripture passage? Spencer, would you come on up? While he's coming up, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask us a question to get us started. What would make you riot? Really, what, what would make you run into the streets with a crowd of people, scream, yell? What would make you riot? Like really think of something or, or multiple things. What injustice, what passion, what thing is so mm, that you would riot for it? All right, we're feeling fired up. You got a nice burn going on inside? Okay. What makes you riot against God? It's not as fun of a question, is it? But really, what makes you riot against God? What is it when it's threatened that when the gospel pushes against something in here or something in, in your life that you want to riot? You blame God. You get frantic, panic, scheming. Just your mind is consumed. What's, what's that thing? Family, money, career, status, comfort. What is it that when it's threatened, you want to riot? Our story this morning, the reason I asked that question is because our story is fundamentally about what happens when the transforming nature of the gospel comes up against the idols of this world. What happens when the gospel is proclaimed in word and deed and it threatens the idols of a city or culture, or people. So that's what, that's what this story is fundamentally about. Spencer, would you, would you read our passage for us? Acts 19, 18 through 20, and uh, 23 through 41. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen uh, there. Sorry, He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, 
sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Spencer. All right, so quite the story on our hands here, right? It's pretty wild. This church in Ephesus comes and they confess and expose and destroy these, these idols, these practices. They've played a part in this, this cult worship. And Demetrius causes this riot, right? He sees the threat that it is. And so he starts this riot. People running into the city, running into this theater that could hold 25,000, yelling, screaming for hours. And most of them not even really knowing why. Right? They grab Paul's friends and they, they, they bring them. And it's just this, this scene. And then the town clerk, you know, of all people, ends up dismissing this riot. Like, what, what's going on here? What is going on in this story? There's two questions for us. First, what causes me to oppose gospel transformation? What are my idols? that I want to defend and protect. In other words, where am I like Demetrius and these writers? Where do I have these idols that I'm holding on to? And then secondly, what happens when we, by the grace of Jesus, confess and expose those idols? What happens when we, like the church in Ephesus at the beginning of our passage, when we are transformed and set free from our idols? What happens? So those are the two questions that this passage has for us this morning. So the first, what are my idols? And how do I oppose the gospel when it threatens them? So what are idols? These little silver gold uh, statues that Demetrius and these other build that they make? No, not really. That's not really the idols here, right? Why do all these idols and, and gods, why do they always have titles? the God of money, power, family, fertility, right? Those are the idols. Those are the real idols. Those are what people are sacrificing to and for, and they're building their whole lives on them. They're looking for ultimate satisfaction in those things. 
We may not have the physical symbols anymore, but those idols are alive and well in our world today, alive and well in this room, alive and well in our hearts, right? Chasing satisfaction, chasing this ultimate satisfaction in money, in family, in status or prestige, in anything other than God, that we have this ultimate sized hole, this infinite sized hole in our hearts, and we're looking to fill it. We're desperate to fill it. And so we're running to these things to fill, to fill that ultimate hole. That I'm looking to satisfy the ultimate with money or family or status or comfort. Those are the idols in the book of Acts. Those are the idols in the ancient world. Those are the idols in this story. So if you remember last week where we were in Acts 17, right? Paul's in Athens and he's preaching in the city of all these false gods, all these false idols and false philosophies, right? They've got a God for everything. They've even got one to the unknown God just in case they miss something, right? And he's there proclaiming good news. And the good news is that these false idols, these man-made idols, that they're not God, but that there is one true God and he has made himself known. He has made himself known in Jesus and all of the things that you're running after in these are found in him. That he's bringing redemption and life and renewal and resurrection through Jesus. Jesus who you were made for, who, who you will find all the places that your heart is seeking, you will find in him. That he is the one ultimate God and made us for ultimate satisfaction in him. And so now we're, we're two chapters later, Paul is in Ephesus and he is proclaiming the same good news. He's proclaiming the same gospel. And at the time of this riot, he's actually been there for almost three years, proclaiming this message that these, these man-made gods, these false idols, they're not God, but that there is a God and it's Jesus and you can know him and you can be satisfied in him. And this message is making an impact, right? People are coming to faith. People are laying down their idols because they have found what their hearts have been longing for. And we see the impact that it made. Look at verse 26 in Demetrius' speech, right? Not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded a great number of people to turn away from idols, right? He is, Demetrius is seeing the impact of this. He's probably the, the head, like the, the leader of this local guild of idol makers, this craft of essentially religious tourism. Ephesus is this massive city known for its idol worship. That's what the city is known for. Artemis, this, this Artemis of the Ephesians, this God of fertility, this God of money, this God of family, this God of all the fertile blessings that can come. People are traveling from all over the world to sacrifice to and, and to get this, this fertile blessing, this money or family or whatever from this God. This is what the city is known for. And this temple of Artemis that Demetrius mentions, this at that time was one of the seven wonders of the world, four times the size of the Parthenon. This is what people came to Ephesus for. It's actually become so much part of Ephesus that their entire economy is built on this, built on this worship built on this temple, built on these idol uh, practices and, and sales. These cult and idol practices are everything in Ephesus. This is a serious industry. And Demetrius and these men he's gathered have gotten rich off it. 
right? It's not just like they, they did okay. Like they have gotten wealthy off this practice. And they are seeing the threat because people are finding Jesus and they are turning away from idol worship and now it's a threat. Right, Paul's been in Ephesus for three years. Okay, you know, Demetrius, he's like, whatever. You know, this offshoot of the Jews. Oh, whoa, whoa. Now it's coming against my wealth. Now it's coming against my God, Artemis. His wealth. Right, you can, you can tell he clearly doesn't care about Artemis. It's his wealth. That is his God. Look at, look at how he starts his speech in verse 25. From this business, we have our wealth. From this industry, from all this, we have our wealth. That's what matters. That's what's important about all this. He's going right to the heart, right to that question at the beginning of what would you riot for? What is so important to you? What is it? He's going right there. Hey, this, from this business, we have our wealth, and that's a threat. But he cloaks it in something else. Right, look, look at what he says in verse 27. And there is danger that, what? That our wealth will be taken away. We greedy, covetous people, our wealth is in danger. No, that's not what he says. That's what he means, but look at what he says. The danger is that our trade would lose its good name, our temple discredited, and that Artemis may lose her majesty, she whom the whole world worships. He is cloaking his interest, he's cloaking their interest, their gain, their wealth, and much more noble causes, right? First, an economic stability. This, this industry of religious tourism, this industry they're, they're the leaders of, is essentially what Ephesus' whole economy is built on. And so if this trade, right, if it loses its good name, if it comes in a bad reputation, then this whole city, this whole economy, what will happen? That's that threat, not our wealth, but this trade, the good name of this trade, that this economy, that this city is built on. That's that threat. He's cloaking, he's hiding his real God in these noble things. So that's, that's one, economic stability. And then look at the second thing he says. That the temple may be discredited, counted as nothing. This cloak is civic pride, right? Essentially local patriotism. This temple, this four times the size of the Parthenon, this, this wonder of the world, right? This is what our city's known for. This is what people travel from everywhere to see. What if this temple is discredited? If it's counted as nothing, what is Ephesus? What are we known for? This is who we are, right? So first economic stability and then civic pride. And then look at the last thing he cloaks it in. Religious zeal that Artemis may be stripped of her majesty, of her magnificence. She whom the whole world worships. The whole world worships her. What if all the people of the world lose their worship? He's cloaking it in religious zeal. He is cloaking his interest in these noble causes, economic stability, civic pride, religious zeal. And so they riot on these grounds, crying out, Great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for hours. And why that cry? Why that refrain? 
Because a threat to her greatness was a threat to their greatness. A threat to her name and status was a threat to their name and status. A threat to her prosperity was a threat to their prosperity. And so it begs the question for us, do you know what your idols are? And do you know what clothes they wear? Do you know what your idols are and do you know what clothes you dress them in? Demetrius' idol is wealth. It's his money, right? That's that threat. But he closed it in these other things. But he's going to do everything he can to protect it. And we, like Demetrius, have idols. We look to things, we run to things for satisfaction. I think Matt mentioned last week the, the Calvin quote that the human heart is an idol factory, right? We have this deep longing that God made this ultimate longing, and we will run after anything we can to try to fill it. It's just an idol factory. We have idols. And we, like Demetrius, we cloak our idols and more noble things. I'll tell you some of mine, some of the clothes I dress my idols in. Financial security, that my kids would have a good education that I'd have a really healthy family system, that, that my kids would live in a secure home and have secure relationships, that I'd have an honorable reputation, that I'd be well-liked. Those sound good, right? Sound noble? They are. I only dress my idols in the finest of clothes. My idols have a much, much nicer wardrobe than I do, and I spend a lot more dressing them. A lot more time, a lot more money, a lot more energy, a lot more thought. And the idols underneath those clothes, right, money, security, not needing anything, which is a pretty funny one because I'm a, by nature a needy being, but I find a way. Right, that my family would be okay, that I would be accepted and loved. And those are idols because I run after them in such a way that if those are okay, then I'll be okay. That's what I need to be okay. If that's okay, then I'll be okay. And I'm looking for the satisfaction in other places and anywhere else except for the only one who can give it to me. And so when those are threatened, I'm going to riot. I'm going to scheme. I'm going to get frantic. My mind will be consumed with fixing, with making sure that's okay so that I can be okay. I'm going to run and chase down everything I can so that I can be okay. I, I will be restless in that chase. And so when my idols are threatened, when our idols are threatened, that's when we start to riot. When the gospel starts to push against those idols in our life, and it does, right? We're going to cloak and riot. And our natural state, our, our response of the flesh is to respond like Demetrius does, to protect, to hide, to cover, to cloak, to defend, to maintain. Maintain the system and idols that we've built our lives on. And so, do you know what your idols are? 
And do you know what clothes they wear? Do you know what you dress them in to make them sound better, to make them sound more palatable, to keep them alive? Are you curious about them? Like, why do we run after these things? Because we're searching desperately for this longing, for the deepest desires of our hearts to be satisfied. And are you curious about what your idols are? Because they're probably connected to your story. Right? For me, prestige and status doesn't consume that much of my mind and heart. I certainly have and can make an idol out of it. I'm not saying that. But that's not the thing that really consumes my mind and heart. For me, all I wanted growing up was to be loved and delighted in. A great desire. A great desire that Jesus actually satisfies completely. But I will run. I did run. I will run after anything else trying to get that, trying to fill that longing of being loved and accepted. Are you curious about your desires, your story, where those connect to idols in your life? Right, that's why it's an idol, not because it's bad. Most people don't have bad idols. They have good idols, money, family, status, to be loved, right? But I'm looking for ultimate delight in things that can't give it to me. I'm looking for ultimate satisfaction in those things. And so do you know your idols? Do you know what clothes they wear? Because we are called to do what the church in Ephesus does at the beginning of this passage. Look at verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, destroying their idols, burning them, right? Almost $6 million in today's money worth of destruction of these things. Why? Why are we called to destroy, to confess, to expose our idols? Because they are stealing life from us. They are causing us to be restless in this never-ending chase of ultimate satisfaction and things that can never deliver it. And so God calls us to confess and expose and by the power of the Spirit and the grace of Jesus to put those to death because they are stealing from us. They are stealing life. They are causing us to be restless and because we have the one who can give us that. Right? The church in Ephesus here, they're already believers. Look, many who believed, many who were already believers, they now came and confessed. Many here who are already believing, would we come and confess? Would we expose our idols? Would we expose the clothes, that the idols behind the clothes we dress them in? That together we might be set free from those idols? Will you endeavor with this body to confess and destroy them? We are on this adventure of transformation together, just like the church here in Ephesus, together did this. On this adventure together of renewal and continuing to be set free. And this is one of the reasons why, here at Midtown, we emphasize small groups so much, because this is one of the places where that can happen, where there's ability and opportunity and safety of being known, and frequency, where we can confess, where we can share, where we can expose, where we can ask for prayer, where we can encourage one another, and together be transformed, to continue to be set free 
And the question is, what happens when we do that? That's the second part. What happens when we are set free? When we continue on this journey, right? It's not a one-time thing. Like, I don't have idols anymore. Like, as we continue to be set free, as we continue to come and confess, continue to expose, what happens? And we see here that two different things happen when the transformation of the church is on display. Right, we've got the response of Demetrius and the rioters, right? That's the response that takes up most of this, of this story, to riot, protect, defend. But what's the other response? What's the other response in this story? Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So, don't miss that word. In this way, thus, therefore, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. People are seeing, they are beholding these Ephesian Christians in the sight of all, in this confession, in this exposing, in this being set free from their idols. And through that, so, the word is continuing to increase. People are seeing and beholding. They're seeing these Ephesian Christians find what their hearts have been longing for. And the word is coming to them. The good news is coming to them. They are being set free. They're laying down their idols because they found what their hearts have always longed for. And our vision statement here at Midtown West reflects this. If you've been around, I know you've heard it a bunch, but we are a community of people on adventure with Jesus to be set free, to set others free, and to enjoy that freedom together. That order matters. First, we are on adventure to be set free. We are on adventure with Jesus to continue to be set free, to continue to be transformed, to continue to be set free from our idols, from our darkness, from our sin, and then to be on this adventure of setting others free. But here's the thing. It's not just a prerequisite. Our being set free is not just this ticket. Like, here you go. All right, now we can go set others free. It is the means of setting others free, right? If you were here for State of the Union, then you, you know the video I'm talking about, but Matt showed this video um, of this guy at a music festival, and he's kind of off in the field by himself, dancing with no inhibitions. Like, he is dancing like no one's watching. He's free on something, right? And he's by himself, and then all of a sudden, someone joins him, and then another. And then all of a sudden, it's like this mass of people they saw him dancing, and they wanted to join. They saw his freedom, and they wanted to join that. They're seeing and beholding his freedom in dancing. Our being set free, our dance of freedom in the gospel, of life in Jesus, it is the means of setting others free. Our transformation is this, this witness to the goodness of Jesus to setting others free and to enjoying that freedom with them. This is why God so often calls his church a light, an aroma, a fragrance, right? That we would draw, that our freedom would draw others to be set free as well. So that's one response, right? That's verse 20. But then we've got the other response, riot and conflict. Why? 
because no one responds to their idols being threatened, their true idols, that which they, the deepest desires of their heart are connected to, that which they built their entire lives on, which they are seeking the ultimate end, which they are saying, I need this to be okay so that I'm okay. No one responds to those being threatened with, eh. It's either they are beholding something better. Whatever they were searching for in that, they are beholding something better. They're beholding Jesus and they're laying down their idols or it's to riot and defend and protect. Right, Demetrius is right to feel threatened because the freeing transformation of the gospel is a threat to the systems of the world. It's a threat to the systems of the world built on idols. It is a threat to his wealth built on false worship, built on this never-ending search for satisfaction from idols that can never deliver. He is in the business of the never-ending chase of worship. That's what Demetrius' business is. He's in the business of the never-ending chase of worship, the never-ending searching for satisfaction. And many people today are in that same business, wanting us to buy from them. And as people are finding ultimate satisfaction in Jesus, it's a threat. It's a threat to Demetrius' God, his wealth, his God that he is in the never-ending chase to be satisfied in. And so part of this adventure that we are on with Jesus and with each other of being set free, of setting others free, of enjoying that freedom, part of this adventure is going to come with conflict because we live in a world of idols. We live in a world of a system of idols, of industry and commerce that's built on this idol worship. And the transforming work of the gospel in people's lives threatens the systems that are built on them. And it threatens the people that are beholden to them. The gospel pushes against the darkness of the world. It pushes against, it rubs up against these systems and idols. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. And we, this local body, this local embassy of that kingdom, will at times push up against, that we will rub against the idols of the world, even as we seek to confess and destroy them in our own lives. Not even, even as, but through, through our confession and seeking to destroy, we will rub up against opposition and conflict will come. That's what so much of this book of Acts is about that God is setting people free, that he is on this mission to free people, but that in that mission that he's opposed, that his good news is opposed, but that he continues even through the opposition, even through the conflict to bring people to freedom. Opposition will come, both from those who profit off of it, profit off this idol worship like Demetrius, and those swept up in the rush, right? swept up in the rush of the crowd. Look at verse 32. Some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, not even knowing why they'd come together. Not even knowing why, but swept up in the rush of this riot to defend this idol of the city. There are people in our neighborhood, there are people in our city beholden to idols in the never-ending chase of satisfaction searching for that which is only found in Jesus. They're searching, they're longing to be set free. 
And so will we endeavor on this adventure with Jesus and with each other to proclaim good news and to seek the freedom of our neighbors, even knowing that conflict will come at times? Will we go on this adventure knowing that conflict will come, that we will rub up against idols, that we will step on landmines in conversations? Will we dance anyway? Will we dance in the freedom of new life, knowing that God is bringing others to dance with us, that he's setting others free to enjoy that freedom with us? All right, this tiny, this minority church in Ephesus, this tiny church, their transformation threatened the economy of an entire city. What would it look like for us, for our transformation to impact this neighborhood? What would it look like for us to actually believe we found something better? Something better than what our world is chasing, the very thing that their hearts long for. What would it be like for us to actually believe that and actually want our neighbors to know that? to know the thing they long for. All right, I want to close with the way this story closes. So you've got these Christians in, in Ephesus confessing, and this riot happens, and Demetrius, from Demetrius' speech, this massive crowd runs into the theater. They drag Paul's friends with them. You've kind of got this hilarious scene where the Jews try to put Alexander forth to separate themselves from the Christians. Right? He's going to be like, hey, we're, we're different. We're not, a, we're not a part of this. And so he goes up to quiet the crowd, and they just scream for two straight hours. I'm glad y'all didn't do that to me this morning. Right? And then it ends with this town clerk dismissing the riot of all people. And look at how it ends. Look at what he says to end it. Look at verse 40. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Danger. The riot ends with the town clerk saying, danger, we are in danger. This riot actually starts and finishes with speeches about danger, right? Demetrius gets this whole thing started with danger. We are in danger of losing our wealth. We are in danger of losing everything our city is built on. And then the town clerk ends it with danger. We are in danger of being charged with rioting. And the irony is that it's the same danger. It's the same danger that ignites and puts out this riot. The reason why there was danger of being charged with rioting is because Ephesus is part of the Roman Empire. But they still have these local assemblies, these local governance, these local laws that they can act in. And if they're charged with rioting, if the Romans come in and charge them with rioting, but they're uncivilized and can't do this, they're going to strip them of their power. And now they have no local assemblies. It's just Rome. That's the danger. The danger is that their power could be taken away, that their idol could be stripped that their system, their idol is at threat again, right? It was the idol of wealth that got this whole thing going, and now it's the idol of power that's going to end it. And that is what running after false gods do to us 
I'm always running from one thing to the next to protect my idol. I've always got to keep it alive. I've got to riot to keep it alive. Now I've got to stop to keep it alive. I've got to do this. I've got to say this. In this cultural moment, I need to do this to keep this going. It's this never-ending chase to keep my idols alive. Because they have got to be okay so that I can be okay. And so I've got to keep this, this chase. I've got to keep up to make sure they're okay so that I can be okay. And when they're in danger, when they're threatened, I'm going to do everything I can to make them okay so that I can be okay. And that's why these things never deliver. They never deliver what we want them to. There's only one person who can stop that never-ending chase, that never-ending chase toward idols, that never-ending chase in defending and maintaining and making sure that I'm okay. Because they're always that threat because they aren't eternal. They aren't ultimate. And there's only one person who is, only one person who can stop that chase, and that is Jesus. That is Jesus. Because Jesus is the eternal, infinite, ever-satisfying God who loves us and made us to know and find satisfaction in him. That longing that we have, we were made for that, and we were made to find it in Jesus. Do you long for love and acceptance? In Jesus, Jesus who is love, there's the fullness of delight in love over you, the very lover of your soul. Do you long for status, dignity, honor? In Jesus, you have been made co-heirs with him, co-heirs of a kingdom, of an eternal kingdom. You have an eternal seat at the royal table, a status and an honor that you could never earn. Do you long for security? In Jesus, you have someone who will never let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. No one can ever take you from his hands. And he is never at threat because he controls everything and he is always with us. And we will be with him for all eternity in the fullness of everything we need and more. And so, both for us and for our neighbors, for our neighbors in our city who are running after the deepest longing of their hearts in these things, and for us who turn to these things to, find, to be satisfied, the answer is to run and behold Jesus, to see and behold and taste something better, not to push down, not to ignore these desires, but to say, I was made for this, and I'm, I find this in Jesus. to run to someone better, to the only one who we can find these desires in, to confess and expose our idols, to confess and expose when we're running after this and, and something or someone else, to hand in hand, together, endeavor and encourage one another to run to Jesus, the ultimate lover of our souls, the ultimate satisfier of every longing we have. Friends, we have good news to proclaim good news to proclaim to our neighbors, good news to proclaim to each other, good news to proclaim to ourselves. Jesus satisfies. 
Let's pray. Lord, would you show us our idols? Would you not let us cloak them? Would you not let us hide them? Would you show us? Would you protect us from the enemy who wants us to be deceived about them, who wants us to think they aren't stealing from us, they aren't causing us to be restless, they aren't taking life from us? Will you protect us from that enemy who wants to deceive us? Would you protect us from the enemy who wants to shame us about them? Would you free us in the power of the Spirit to confess, to bring them into the light, so that we may rest in you? Amen.